and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Ulrike Franke. I'm a policy fellow at ECFR based in the London office. And I'm stepping in today for our director, Mark Leonard, who unfortunately cannot join us. And I know that he's particularly heartbroken about this, as we really have an all-star cast here today to talk about the European elections, and in particular, the stories behind the headlines, which I'm sure most of our listeners have been reading and following over the last week. Namely, I am joined today by Susie Dennison, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, and she's the director of ECFR's European Power Program, and she joins us from Paris. I'm particularly happy to be joined by Simon Hicks. He's the pro-director for research and the Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science at the LSE, the London School of Economics. He's also a visiting fellow at ECFR and chair of Vote Watch Europe, the website that really tells you everything you need to know about the European elections. And last but not least, joining us from Paris too, is Pavel Tsaka. He's the program coordinator of the European Power Program and Policy Fellow at ECFR. And he's been doing a lot of work on the results of these elections. So also very knowledgeable about everything that's been happening in the European Parliament. Um, so we want to discuss the stories behind the headlines a bit, um, and yet I think it would be good to start with a kind of short overview of the main stories, because these really were big elections, so it's easy to miss elements and kind of get bogged down in details. So I, for instance, was in Austria when the results became public and kind of spent way more time than I usually would on the Austrian results. The elections were big in the sense that a lot of people voted. So, of course, all EU citizens could vote, and a lot of them did, namely 51%, which is a rather good turnout, and maybe we can also talk about this. Let me start with you, Simon. Um, can you give us kind of an overview of the results and really what the main stories were for you? So the main stories for me were several folds. So the, the first big story, I think, is the quite dramatic decline of the two biggest political groups in the parliament, the EPP on the centre-right, the Socialists and Democrats on the centre-left. For the first time in the history of the elected European parliament, they will have less than 50% of the seats. So they're down to low 40s, 40% uh, of the seats. So this is part of a, a secular decline we've seen all across European national elections in support for the mainstream centre-left, the mainstream centre-right. And the corollary of that is where is the support going? And so it's really going to two different types of forces. One, which we've kind of known about for a while, which was the populist right in particular. And the populist right did very well in these elections. And their representation in the parliament is up to around about 25% of the seats. But they didn't do as well as we thought they were going to do, which is quite interesting. And perhaps we'll come back to that later. The other new force is is a huge jump in support for the Liberals and the Greens, the sort of progressive pro-Europeans in the centre of the parliament, up to 24% of the seats in this parliament. So a general story of fragmentation, a much more fragmented parliament than before, more political groups all the way from the radical left through the mainstream centre-left, the Greens, the Liberals, the EPP, and various forces to the right of the centre-right EPP. So a much more fragmented parliament, a much more exciting parliament in a way to watch and to see what happens. And on top of that, I think we weren't expecting it, but a big surprise and a big pleasant surprise for pro-Europeans was turnout, turnout going up from 43% to 51%. So this partly helps us explain why did we then see the surprising boost for Greens and Liberals, because the turnout suggests it was progressive pro-Europeans that were really mobilized to come and vote in these elections. 
Yeah, actually, I know that you and Susie have both written about kind of what to expect from these elections. So you said um, a, a big surprise was turnout, but were there things you were personally surprised by in terms of the the what actually happened? To what extent did the did the results fit your expectations, Simon? Well, we, so we had a model where we were predicting the elections based on how we understand all previous European Parliament elections. So we know from studying previous Parliament elections, big parties tend to do badly and certain smaller parties tend to do well. Um, we also had a lot of survey data we collected for ECFR. And so we had a forecasting model. In general, the model was right, but it really significantly underpredicted the Greens. And so that was a really big surprise. So of all the political groups, that was the one where we, we hugely unpredicted uh, the, the strength in support for the Greens. Um, and we slightly overpredicted uh, what we thought the number of seats that were going to go to the populists. So not quite so a much more progressive pro-European outcome in these elections than I think a lot of forecasters were predicting. Mm -hmm. And how about Su you, Susie, when you were following the results? Was there any any country or any party that did particularly well or badly um, and that surprised you? Well, I think um, what's interesting for me in these election results is that, um, as you and Simon have said, we've, we've had this much bigger mobilisation um, than we thought, but that went literally in all directions. And so in a way, that explains why any sort of overarching narrative about these elections kind of falls down somewhere. So, for example, yes, it's true that overall that the kind of the big parties um, lost seats, but you can find really positive stories um, for the Grand Coalition, EPP parties and S&D if you look at a national level. For example, um, in the Netherlands, in Spain, in Romania, the socialists did did really well. Um, you can also see like in Germany, um, uh, CDU actually sort of came in, in in first place. In Greece, there was um, a really strong story for um, new democracy. And then again, you see sort of in some settings, it was it was kind of the vote um, to the Liberals and the Greens, which which was the, the big surprise. Um, and then in other other settings, um, you, you did see far right parties um, coming in first place in, in some of these elections. And so I think, you know, what for me holds this set of results together is this idea of a very volatile change driven um, electorate um, where, you know, in, in each setting, people are voting against the status quo, if you like. And, you know, previously we, we had thought that um, it was only populist parties that could kind of do well out of that idea that they sort of have done particularly well in recent national elections um, uh, by by sort of pitching themselves as the, as the parties of change, the voice of the people and so on. But I think what we saw here in these elections is that some more progressive forces were able to sort of capture that idea for themselves. And, and, and as a result, um, people uh, were willing to vote with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting point about the kind of anti-status quo vote. Because on the one hand, what both of you have been um, describing is that in a way, the, the countries are becoming less coherent, right? Or it, there isn't really a kind of an overarching narrative all throughout Europe. I mean, maybe the green search to some extent, but even that didn't happen everywhere. But um, what you said about the status quo, I mean, in the research that you published before the election was also very clear that a lot of people aren't really happy with, I mean, both the European Union and the European Parliament, but also more broadly with national politics. And so they voted 
against the status quo and in favor of of other parties. So maybe that's a kind of overarching narrative. I do agree that, um, you know, one of the, the most striking um, bits of data that we collected through the, the surveys with YouGov that Simon was referring to um, in the months leading up to the elections was this idea that when we asked um, whether or not people felt that the political system worked well or whether they thought it was broken, three quarters of respondents across all of Europe said that either the national level or the European level or both were broken. So I think that that is kind of very much kind of driving what we've seen playing out in these elections. And and, and I think it will continue to do so. It's very been very interesting in follow-up to the elections that we've seen the resignations of a number of, um, uh, of party leaders in the last few days, the, um, the SPD leader um, uh, in, in, in Germany, um, uh, the leader of Les Républicains here in France, um, a, a kind of an acceptance that those parties that the sort of aren't managing to capture this idea that they can change um, the status quo, that the political system can be different, are just not doing very well in this current environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, in a way, it seems to me as if these elections kind of showed, I mean, as you say, the turnout was really good, 51% overall. And um, I think Pavel actually collected the the numbers for the different countries, but overall um, election turnout was better than, than in the years before. But didn't really work in the sense that the higher turnout there is, the less populous vote you have. I mean, it really kind of depended um, on the countries. Since you mentioned France, Susie, just very briefly, um, in France, of course, um, the Front National or the Rassemblement National, I think it's called now, came first and before Emmanuel Macron's uh, République en marche. But I've been wondering, to what extent... Are you worried about these results? Because, you know, the, the Front National does generally rather quite well in European elections. And if I'm not mistaken, they did pretty much exactly as well as they did four years ago. So what's your view from Paris? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a really um, interesting one to watch um, uh, as um, as the uh, Rassemblement National and others kind of digested um, how they've done in, in these elections in, in the course of last Monday. Um, but yes, they did come in in first place. And this was very much kind of what they were looking for. This was the goal that they'd set themselves. But in the end, it was literally by one percentage point. So this was not the tidal wave of support um, that they'd kind of that they'd promised. And in a way, one kind of expected for a party that set itself up in opposition to a government that's that's midterm, that's had a really difficult year with the Gilets Jaunes protests here in France, um, that's just been through a kind of a massive um, process of consultation to deal with the fallout of that. And so in a way, um, the Rassemblement National had been trying to kind of pitch these elections as a kind of referendum on um, uh, whether or not um, uh, that crisis, political crisis had been resolved. So in a lot of ways, I think, yes, they came in in first place, but but once kind of the, the dust had settled, it, this was a bit of a disappointing result um, for, for the Rassemblement National. And, 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 and again, a bit of a kind of status quo result for them. Yeah. And I think this is a really important point, just, you know, talking about going behind the headlines, because especially in the German media, the headline was very much, you know, the far right wins the election. And I think a little bit of context, as you've just given it, is, is quite useful. Um, Pavel, you took a look at the kind of green surge, right? And I've been wondering, so to what extent, so we, we've, we've heard a lot about the green surge, and in some countries there really was one, but to what extent is this present all over Europe? And to what extent, and I know you also looked at that, is this a, a youth phenomenon? 
I totally agree with Simon and uh, Susie for saying that the picture is mixed and that this uh, feeling that the system is broken does not necessarily mean that people would vote for anti-system parties, that the influence is visible on all directions of the political uh, scene. And Greens are only among some of the beneficiaries of this uh, phenomenon. We've seen that the Greens have gone really uh, well in, in Germany and in France, uh, as well as Ireland. They, they got a reasonable result in, uh, in Finland, Denmark. They, they went really big in the UK. Uh, they are present in Luxembourg. And the Czech pirates uh, also are supposed to join Green Group in the Euro European Parliament, which is important for the geographical balance of that group, because without the Czechs, this group will be, would be largely Western focused. In, in the same way as, as we talk about uh, the new voters on the green or liberal or anti-system side, I, I think that uh, the youth voters, they embody this phenomenon uh, really strongly. So we should not assume that, uh, we should not look on Germany and France only, where uh, youth voters voted mostly for the uh, green party uh, in a, uh, as opposed to the established party. So in Germany, we've seen a huge uh, uh, difference in, in support for CDU, CSU across the, the age groups and for the Green Party. And the same way it worked in, in France with the vote for, for Emmanuel Macron's party and for, uh, and, and for the Greens. In a way, Emmanuel Macron, who still uh, tends to think of himself and his movement as a young and uh, revolutionary movement, it looks like it's already seen as uh, as element of the uh, mainstream. But what's important for me is that we've seen this phenomenon in Germany and France or in the French-speaking part of Belgium. That, that, that means that the, the young are particularly prone to think in, 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 in the way that green parties uh, think, like being very, very progressive. But actually, we should not forget about other examples like Poland, where the anti-EU, far-right and very racist party, which is called Confederacja, which luckily did not manage to enter into the European Parliament, but it didn't miss the target by, by, by much. Uh, it was uh, largely voted by the young voters and had over 15% of support uh, among them. And similarly, for example, in Slovakia, many young voters voted progressively for a pro-European movement called Progressivne in coalition with Spolu. Uh, but at the same time, as many young voters voted for a nationalist, far-right and anti-establishment Kotleba party. I, I mentioned uh, the French-speaking part of Belgium, which voted, uh, where the young uh, voters voted largely for the Greens. But if we look into the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, then it was the Vlaams Belang, which, which was largely supported by uh, the young. So this already shows that, that uh, we should not take the young voters for granted in the sense that they would always be uh, progressive. They are probably the most likely to think of the mainstream as kind of rotten system, and therefore they are particularly likely to look for alternatives. But then they, they would uh, try to find those alternatives on, in all corners of the political spectrum, and some parties uh, might capture their attention. Uh, they, they can end up being anti-European parties, but they can also be Greens or liberal, Liberals. So once again, a very mixed picture, even when it comes to the young. I mean, just kind of putting my, my German hat on for a second. Um, as Pavel said, in Germany, the results were 
you know, really interesting in the sense that there really was a, a younger voter, older voter divide, although in Germany, really anyone under 60 seems to be young, because uh, among the voters under 60, the Greens won, but, you know, it, they won most among the very young voters, and the voters over 60 voted for CDU, in majority. Um, given how old the country is overall, uh, that means that CDU still won, but it really showed a kind of clear divide. Um, so Simon, we've been hearing a bit about France and Poland and Germany. So I want to go quickly to the UK. And of course, the UK is a bit of an odd case. Um, Matt Shirley from uh, The Times put this really nicely on Twitter because he said, remember, on a turnout of 38% in elections that were not supposed to happen for seats which Britain is not supposed to take up, we shouldn't read too much into this. And I'm pretty sure you commented um, killjoy or something like that to this um, to this comment. But really, I mean, what happened in the UK and how much can we read into this? Because it is such a weird election. Yes, it's only a 38% or 37% turnout in the UK. So there's not much you can infer from this. Also, European elections in the UK are traditionally very much a protest vote against the parties in government. But two really big things happened here. One is the Brexit party that Nigel Farage launched from scratch in six weeks, went from zero to 32 percent of the vote, you know, absolutely historic in British terms. And, and he took a lot of support from the British Conservative Party and also from Labour in large parts of the north of England. And a lot of people are pointing out how Labour collapsed in a lot of its heartlands in Wales and Scotland and the north of England, and its voters there went to the Brexit Party. On the other hand, what we saw in London and a lot of the university towns up and down the country um, and a lot of younger voters coming out and voting for the Lib Dems and the Greens and an astonishing result for the Liberal Democrats. And so that polarization between anti-European forces and pro-European forces, in a sense, it's not about the old mainstream centre left against the old mainstream centre right. We're seeing a new, a new dimension of politics between a more liberal, open globalization uh, attitude, pro-immigration, pro-global trade, pro-Europe, and more protectionist, more nationalist, more uh, skeptical of European integration and globalization. That, the European elections in the UK epitomize that trend, which is a cross-European trend, and it will have implications for British politics going forward. And a lot of those voters who voted for Brexit Party or voted for Lib Dem, it's the first time they've left Labour and the Conservatives. And once you've crossed the Rubicon of voting for a new party, now we're seeing opinion polls for the national elections in the UK where Brexit Party is now first in national election opinion polls. Liberal Democrats are now third in national election opinion polls. You know, astonishing having come from nowhere. The last election in the UK, more than 80 percent of voters voted for Labour and Conservatives. Now they're down to around about 55 percent. I mean, astonishing change just in the last couple of years in the UK. Mm -hmm. And once again, we have this cutting in half of the of the British electorate. Right. I mean, kind of pro and against. It's, 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 yeah. It's and a very polarized, a very a real polarization of the electorate in, in, in general. One of the things that interests me about what is happening, not just in Britain, but about the, the way European politics has been heading over the last three to five years is it's no longer a sort of pro and anti-Europe battle. In the UK, sure. But in, in lots of other countries in Europe, 
Eurosceptics are not necessarily anti-European anymore. They've got a different vision of what kind of EU they want. And so when you think about the alliance that Salvini is trying to build on the right in the European Parliament, bringing together Le Pen, Wilders, Alternative for Deutschland, some of the Scandinavian Eurosceptics, some of the broad Eurocritical alliance. It's, and you listen to their rhetoric. They no longer say we want to tear down the EU. What they say is we want a different kind of EU. We want a more protectionist EU that's protecting national borders, protecting European way of life, protecting European businesses from globalization. That's a very different vision. The traditional Europe has been a liberal, open vision, free movement of goods, services, people, uh, globalization. So it's a very different vision about Europe and where Europe should be heading. So that's a good segue into alliances. Um, so there are, of course, you know, different party groups in the European Parliament. And we've seen quite an interesting shift now, right? I think you mentioned it at the very beginning, namely that the, the so-called grand coalition, so the coalition between Christian Democrats or the European People's Party and the Social Democrats together don't have a majority in the European Parliament anymore. And partly the reason for this is that that the French um, uh, République En Marche went with the Alder group, the, the, the liberal group. So we have changed majorities. What do you reckon this is going to mean for European, for European Parliament politics and European politics more broadly going forward now? Are we going to see new coalitions? I mean, contrary to national parliaments, this parliament doesn't need to form a government, but of course you still need... Uh, majorities to to decide certain things. So how how do you see these kind of new majorities in the in the European Parliament, Simon? What do you think is going to happen? What does this mean for different policy areas? Yeah. So what we've seen is over the last two cycles, two sessions of the European Parliament is is what we see in EU politics in general is coalitions that form issue by issue, and they, they tend to be quite stable within a particular issue. So we've tended to see centre-right majorities in the European Parliament on things like market uh, liberalisation and global free trade, and also the Eurozone crisis. And we saw in centre-left majorities in the European Parliament on things like environment regulation, free movement of people, justice and home affairs, gender equality, development. In, on everything else, we've seen a grand coalition of the two biggest groups. And the two biggest groups instinctively try and work together, but actually they have in the past been able to build a coalition, the Social Democrats working with the Greens, the GUI and the Liberals to, to try and lead a centre-left majority, and EPP working again with Liberals in some areas and with ECR to build a majority. Either of those two majorities are going to be smaller and much less stable because of the fragmentation of the parliament. So some of the areas where, where we used to see a relatively stable free market majority in the parliament or stable free trade majority or stable liberal free movement of people or liberal immigration policy, those majorities, I think, are going to be smaller and much less stable. And so we could see a much more fluid parliament with some surprising policy outcomes. Because, for example, a bigger delegation of populist MEPs in the European Parliament, they're very much opposed to global free trade. They don't want a global a trade agreement between the EU and the United States. They're also, mm -hmm. they don't want open and liberal immigration policies. Um, and also they're quite skeptical towards the way the EU has been heading to resolve the Eurozone crisis. So some of the standard mainstream policies we've seen out of the EU over the last five years, I think we could see challenged in the coming five years. 
That's very interesting. Susie, what, what, what do you think in terms of the kind of policy areas? Would you agree with Simon that it's like free trade, migration, Eurozone reform that's kind of going to be the, the most, where we're going to see the most changes? Or is there anything else you're, you're particularly interested in? I totally agree with this kind of this this image that we're going to see very much kind of issue based coalitions. I think the challenge um, that um, the the different party groups are going to have in terms of coming together around these issues is that precisely the kind of um, uh, the the mobilizer questions that we've seen kind of really bring voters to the ballot box um, in these elections. And by that, you know, I, I think um, climate is a big one. Um, fairness, um, sort of in, in a broader sense of economic justice, this this kind of idea of, of changing the political system. I think these are going to be um, these are going to be quite divisive um, uh, for the parties in terms of how they go about um, delivering on the issue. So, yeah, for example, I'm very interested to see how the climate change question plays yeah. out, right? Because this is this is going to be at the centre um, of, um, of of the agenda of, of basically any party kind of reading the analysis of what happened in these elections, not. To just those parties um, uh, that kind of benefited from the green wave. But also, I think sort of um, policy wise, we're going to see lots of mainstream parties thinking about, OK, what, do, what, what is our message um, now on climate? How can we make that work? And for example, I think if you look at Aldi um, and particularly the, the Aldi uh, uh, Renaissance La République En Marche alliance, the question of the, what policies you pursue, whether you pursue a more kind of individual responsibility or company responsibility or agricultural responsibility, uh, which you prioritise, I think is, is going to be sort of quite tricky um, between some of these alliances. So um, it, it will be a challenge. The thing is, this challenge applies as much to um, uh, the kind of the progressive parties as it does to the anti-European parties. And, and this is where, um, uh, you know, Simon's right. There are some areas where we, we do see them um, uh, aligning around common agendas, um, and, and this and this is just not not just the far right, but also the far left in in some cases, like the sort of the anti free trade agenda, for example. But I think on some of the kind of the big questions that are going to preoccupy the Parliament in in the first months, um, the discussions over the next budget, um, the MFF, the discussions over um, approving the next College of Commissioners, um, uh, and, and and then and the sort of the um, migration, which was their emblematic issue for mobilising their voters in these elections. I think again, it's it's going to be quite tricky for them to come to um, common positions because if you take, for example, um, the question of migration, you have a very different policy approach from uh, Salvini's La Liga, where they're asking for kind of more European cooperation and European states that aren't on the external borders to take more responsibility for those that are arriving um, in Europe by sea. Compare that to um, the message of Viktor Orban's uh, Fidesz in Hungary, which is all about no national issue. This is for national governments. We want less Europe here. Then you take the question of the budget. You've got nationalist parties from the Netherlands, from the Nordic states, the AfD in Germany, who are all pushing um, for a smaller budget overall, um, a smaller cake. Um, and um, by consequence, that means um, less of the cake to be divided up between other countries. Well, that's really problematic for um, far right parties from Central and Eastern Europe, um, from Southern um, European states who've benefited a lot from um, uh, structural and cohesion funds through mm -hmm. the European budget and need to continue to do so for their domestic politics. So um, I, I, I do think that um, there is a real sort of um, yeah delivery challenge um, for, for these coalitions around, around um, the, the questions that they're going to have to address early on. If I can just add on uh, with, with one thing, I totally agree that uh, 
those coalitions uh, depend on an issue in the European Parliament. But I ask myself if that will necessarily be the case in this European Parliament. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, the parties which are not 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 mainstream or not pro-European even, uh, they they are different and they are grouped in different groups in, in the European Parliament, but still there is an issue whether, whether the uh, centre-right and centre-left, probably with Liberals, probably with the Greens, whether they would like to talk to any of them. And what I mostly mean here the ECR, the uh, European Conservatives and Reformists, who used to be a group uh, were led by British Tories and with law and justice from Poland as, as, as a junior partner in that group. But currently, this group will be dominated by, by Poland's law and justice. There are rumors that even Fidesz could join them if, if it uh, leaves uh, the um, European People's Party. And then if rule of law uh, becomes a red line, something uh, which, uh, which should lead parties to surround some other partners with a sanitary cordon, then this would make uh, working with ECR colleagues very difficult. And in that sense, uh, uh, EPP and SND plus liberals could decide to also uh, engage with Greens to, in order to have a strong uh, many, uh, many more than just a majority in the European Parliament so that they can easily act on various aspects of the European agenda, knowing that uh, they cannot ensure a total cohesion within their own ranks. Mm -hmm. I think you make a very good point about the regional power centers with the ECR group kind of being maybe dominated by, by Poland, because, um, and I think it was exactly one of your publications, pa Pavel, where you basically pointed out that in a way now the power center of the EPP is I think Germany, um, although you know they, it, it lost there slightly. Um, it's moving eastwards. Exactly. So EPP is going east. The Social Democrats are going south, um, and Alde is now kind of you know more French dominated. So, a question to all three of you, really: How do you think? This new distribution where the big countries are different regional power centers with regard to the European Parliament parties, um, how is this going to influence personal choices? Because now we need a new uh, commission, so new commissioners. Um, there is a debate about Spitzenkandidaten. So, so where, where do you think this is headed? Maybe um, starting with Simon. Yeah, the regional dynamic is very interesting, in, I think, in two senses. One, yes, the EPP on average is moving eastward, but the general EPP strategy over the last 20 years of having all the major parties on the mainstream right in the EPP, regardless of their stripe or ideology or whatever, has really failed. When you think of mm -hmm. when you look across Central and Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, if Fidesz leave EPP, none of the, all, the EPP will not have the mainstream party on the right in any of the Visegrad countries. If you think of that, ANO and really the largest party now in the Czech Republic, Fidesz in, in Hungary and law and justice in Poland. This is a kind of a schism within the center right in Europe that, that I think we could see start to play out. I think particularly around issues like migration, about uh, Eurozone, foreign policy towards Russia. I think a range of issues. I think we could see a, a, a divide within the right in Europe that we've not seen because the EPP has held has been the glue that has held these things together for the last decade. The other mm -hmm. thing I find interesting is around the Spitzenkandidat 
a sort of Iberian French axis emerging with Macron coming together with the prime ministers of Spain and, and Portugal very early on, immediately after the elections, a sort of progressive liberals, moderate social democrat alliance with these parties in government in the, the, the Spanish, particularly very much the big power now within the social democrats and, and will want and would expect something as a result of the fact they are the new power in the social democrats. They've never really been in that position before. When Gonzalez had a big representation, there were other big representations from France, from Germany, from the UK. That's not the case. It's really the, the, the Pessoa are the big party now. So I, I kind of, if you can imagine a, 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 a Macron-Pessoa alliance, that's a very interesting alliance. And we could see the shadow of that in the parliament in terms of cooperation between Aldi and S&D. Mm-hmm. And so what's, what's your prediction? What, does, what, does, what will this mean for personnel choices, European Commission, uh, European Commission president? I don't think it's going to be easy for Weber or an EPP candidate. I, I, you know, I, I expect... There'll be pressure on the, from the German press and from her own party on Merkel to, to nominate Weber. He was their candidate. Um, I can imagine him withdrawing, saying he hasn't got the will of a majority in parliament, or I can imagine him being rejected by parliament. I don't think Aldi and the Greens and, and the Socialists are willing to support Weber, given what he has done with his defense of, of Fidesz and Orban. We could then see Vestager or even Timmermans emerge as an alternative or Bagnier. But I don't <laughs> think it's as easy for an EPP as it used to be, as, as it was. The election result, I think to me, although EPP are the largest group, it feels like a loss for the EPP. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Susie, Simon, we got out of the question of uh, what he was predicting. Do you want to make a prediction, Susie? Yeah, you giggled when he said Bagnier, but that's where my money is. So, um, right, oh. uh, my, my logic here is that um, uh, I, I do think that domestically um, for Macron, um, the fact that he's talking to the, the socialist party, he's kind of positioning himself further to the left. Um, that kind of that serves a purpose um, in the post Jean environment here in France. But I think ultimately what he needs to show is French leadership in Europe. And that's why I think that in the end, Barnier could be the compromise for him because he's a Frenchman, um, but he's EPP. So that could be the offer to Merkel that, okay, you don't get Weber, but um, even though EPP have not got the upper hand, um, you get Barnier. Um, I could be wrong, but that's where my money would go. Would also be interesting, of course, for the Brits to see the Brexit negotiator become um, European Commission president. Um, Pavel, what do you think? Where, where would you put your money? Uh, I keep my fingers crossed for for Vestager, but also a long shot. But why not? I, we could mention Angela Merkel here as as a, as a possibility. So for the record, Angela Merkel has said that she doesn't want a kind of European Union top job, although, you know, it has been a lot of people have speculated on that, but I don't think that that's likely. But yeah, that's very interesting. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. And of course, there's so much more to discuss. As I mentioned at the beginning, big elections, 28 countries, so many people voted, so many things are happening. So I'm sure we'll come back to the topic at another time. But of course, now, before we end this discussion, I need to ask you what's on your bookshelf so what are what are you reading Susie 
Um, I'm afraid it's not a book um, because uh, I've, uh, I haven't been reading anything very long for a long time. Um, but um, what, what, one um, interesting piece related to our discussion today was a piece that Jean Pisani Ferry um, wrote for Project Syndicate, um, um, say Europe citizens say they want a more political EU. Um, and I think this is a really interesting analysis of, um, of what happened in the European Parliament elections and beyond. And it sort of it highlights a very real delivery uh, issue for the European Parliament in that kind of lots of big policy questions um, that voters seem to really care about here from climate change to, to fairness um, uh, and so on. Um, but actually, the gift to deliver on um, a lot of these things is not with the European Parliament, but rather with the national government. So what mm -hmm. is going to be very interesting is to see sort of how um, these elections and the debate around them kind of really shift the, the politics um, around the European Council table on a lot of these questions. Yeah, that's a very important point about the national uh, politics. Um, Pavel, what are you reading at the moment? Something that you you would really love. It's it's a novel <laughs> by a new novel by Ian McEwan. It's about living with with a robot and uh, about times when when robots become more human than we would ever become. And uh, you you could think that it's totally unrelated to European parliamentary elections, but uh, I was thinking that. To just the contrary, if artificial intelligence is a subject that European countries and the EU as such should increasingly think about, then we should definitely read books like this as well. I love it. Escapism with robots and AI. I'm all for it. And Simon, what are you reading? I'm reading a, a new book by Stanford political scientist Jonathan Rodden called uh, Why Cities Lose, which is a, a result of a long research project he's been involved in where he's showing how Uh, the changing dimensions of politics across the democratic world are increasingly a battle between urban-rural in the United States, in Europe, across the democratic world. And, and in that battle between urban voters and rural voters, um, the type of electoral system that they have in America and the UK really favors the rural voters because the urban voters maybe are progressives, but it helps understand why you get Brexit, why you get Trump and why you, you get f more fair representation in countries that have proportional electoral systems and why it's going to be very difficult for the UK and the US and these, the, and perhaps also France um, because we have an electoral system that really favors the represent, over-representation of rural interests against urban interests. And I think this, this is going to play out increasingly in the globe, battles over globalization that we're seeing. It's going to be interesting to see whether some countries will start to reform that system to, to have a better uh, representation of, of urban voters, but that seems unlikely. All right. Well, um, as regular listeners of this podcast may know, um, I usually recommend fiction, and I am reading in James Elroy novel that I could recommend, but since I'm the host today and stepping in for Mark Leonard, um, I want to sure to, to recommend some great publications that ECFR has done. I mean, I mentioned a few, uh, all three, Simon, Susie, and Pavel, have written for us, but I want to particularly recommend the views from the Capital publications, which ECFR did, and where our policy fellows, you know, from countries such as, or cities such as Warsaw and Berlin and Madrid, wrote down how they saw the European election results. We even have voices from Copenhagen and, and Belgrade, or no, um, a lot of different European uh, cities, and so um, I highly recommend that. 
Now, I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we're going to put all the literature we mentioned on our website, which is ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Um, I also recommend you check out Votewatch EU. And um, if I may, I would recommend you follow Simon Hicks on Twitter because he has been posting so many interesting facts and information on the elections over the last uh, few days that there is a lot of interesting things to check out. Uh, if you want to hear more from me, you can also check out the Sicherheitshalber podcast. But most importantly, if you have enjoyed this episode of the World in 30 Minutes podcast, please let all of your friends know and give us a rating and a review. But for now, from Susie Dennison, from Simon Hicks, and from Fabel Zerka, as well as myself, Ulrike Franke, it's goodbye. The editor of our podcast is Wiebke Ivering.